everyone. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And on this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts to understand and improve your health and well-being. Today, I'm talking with the Dr. Ralph Esposito all about lipid testing because heart disease is the number one killer. I wanted answers around your typical cholesterol test, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, ApoB. What does it mean? And what does that more advanced testing show? Dr. Ralph is a naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, and functional medicine practitioner. He's an author, speaker, and clinical advisor with focus in men's health and longevity medicine. It was an absolute pleasure talking with him today as he's my go-to doctor when I have cholesterol or lipid questions. Here's a clip from today's conversation. When I look at heart disease, I look at it as a whole in terms of vascular disease. So not just your heart, right? But you have to look at strokes and aneurysms and all of these things, they do matter. So people worried about heart attacks and heart disease, they think just the heart, they kind of forget about the brain, which is a big deal. And they forget about the kidneys. So all of these things are related. So the root cause is all of the above. But when you actually kind of look down to it, cholesterol, or I would say lipoprotein particles, actually play a big role in that. I kind of look at it in the context of your inflammatory markers as well. And what is the fuel? What is the fire? What is the match? How do we kind of cool things down? All those things really play a role. So it's time, it's inflammation, and as controversial as many people think this is, it's also cholesterol or lipid particles. That's just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Okay, before we get started though, I do wanna talk to you about one of the best labs for practitioners who are evaluating cardiovascular disease. Boston Heart Diagnostics is transforming the treatment of heart disease with their novel blood testing and their reports. Their advanced lipid tests give practitioners a much more granular view of cardiovascular health that allows you to truly understand your patient's heart disease risk and provide even more personalized care. By combining this powerful testing with lifestyle changes, Boston Heart is really helping practitioners and patients get to the root cause of their heart disease. To learn more about Boston Heart, go to bostonheartdiagnostics.com. And to start ordering Boston Heart Advanced Blood Panels, go to rupahealth.com. All right, let's get this show on the road. The Dr. Ralph Esposito. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> well, you better be. First of all, for the listeners who don't know, Dr. Ralph is one of my very best friends. So it's a complete honor to have him on here as part of the podcast. But the second thing is, Dr. Ralph is who I go to for all things men's health, for one, but all things lipids, which is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm excited. I know a few things about lipids and I'm excited to talk about it. Fantastic. Well, let's start off. Like, why don't you tell everyone a brief introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do, just so they understand who my best friend is. <laughs> yes. Aside from all the other reasons why we're best friends, I think right. one of them is probably maybe because I think we align from a intellectual level. I'm a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist, certified functional medicine practitioner, so IFMCP have postdoc training at NYU Urology, where I learned a lot of my men's health stuff from one of our good friends, Dr. Gio. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot from him. 
and in the meantime, have published a few textbook chapters in the textbook of natural medicine for the CNS certification, the Board of Certified Nutrition Specialists, everything that really is involved in geeky, nerdy stuff. <laughs> and now I currently am in a virtual practice or a practice that is virtual, which mostly focuses on longevity medicine and really just kind of getting down and dirty in a lot of the rabbit holes that I get through when trying to figure out all these nuances with lipids and men's health and hormones and how all these things relate. And I, you know, one of the things that I've learned and it just has, it's just kind of been slapping me in the face all the time is like, every time you come back to it, it's like, well, there's heart disease, like front and center. Mm -hmm. Can we start talking about this? Because really when we're talking about men's health or women's health, these are the things that kill people. And right. I spent a lot of time really focusing on that and, and learning about it. So actually let's start there because I think that's, I don't think a lot of people realize that heart disease is actually the number one killer for males and females. I've talked about this before. We've talked about it on Instagram. I've talked about it on other podcasts, but big picture, why do you think this is? Why do you think heart disease is the number one killer? What are some of the like root cause reasons that you see in all your clinical experience? Yeah, I think we have to really acknowledge the fact that the heart is kind of like our engine. Mm. It's running 24-7, 365 on leap years, right? <laughs> on essentially every single second, millisecond, a lot of us really are involved in the wearables. You know that even HRV is, is in milliseconds, right? So we, it's essentially every single moment of the day. Mm -hmm. And part of it is something that's inevitable. It's essentially just physics. Mm -hmm. Over time, things that are constantly dealing with friction erode or they wear out, right? right? We see mm -hmm. that in car engines. We see that in our sneakers, right? They get worn out. We see that in nature, right? Where mm -hmm. wind and water and sand, uh, wind and water break down rock, create sand. Like we essentially see this as a fact of life. Our hearts, we can't see our hearts, but it happens there too. And it happens in mostly everything that the heart pumps to and even things that you, the heart does not pump to, right? So there's even some diffusion that happens with our joints, right? So we don't have mm. vessels in our joints, but we have diffusion from blood vessels. That's how it nurtures our joints. So right. everything that the heart pumps to, or, or part goes into the heart, is going to be affected by any type of heart disease. So part of it is just basic physics. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at, well, okay, that's a part of heart disease, but there are other things that are right. contributing to heart disease. When I look at heart disease, I look at it as a whole in terms of vascular disease. So not just your heart, right? But you have to look at strokes and aneurysms and all of these things, they do matter. So people worried about heart attacks and heart disease, they think just the heart, they kind of forget about the brain, which is a big deal. And they forget right. about the kidneys. So all of these things are related. So the root cause is all of the above. Mm. But when you actually kind of look down to it, cholesterol, or I would say lipoprotein particles actually play a big role in that. I kind of look at it in the context of your inflammatory markers as well. And what is the fuel? What is the fire? What is the match? How do we mm -hmm. kind of cool things down? All of those things really play a role. So it's time, mm -hmm. it's inflammation, and as controversial as many people think this is, it's also cholesterol or lipid particles. Which is what we're going to dive in today because I want to cover, I want to set the playing field on cholesterol. So if somebody has a cholesterol test in front of them, or they've recently had one drawn that they can sort of follow along. But I also want to get into the advanced lipid testing, which I don't think a lot of people realize is an option and is out there. And I love how you just said, is it the fire, right? Is it the fuel? Is it the match? 
like what's going to ignite it, what can put it out. And we are going to talk about that as we get through some of these questions. So let's just start with the first thing you said. What is cholesterol? It's the most simplest, basic definition when you're talking to a patient who's not in the medical field at all and they say, what's cholesterol? Why do I care? What, how do you answer? Cholesterol is a type of fat. Mm. That's as basic as you can put it, but it's a foundational fat. Mm -hmm. It's a foundational fat because we need it for a lot of functions in our body. We need it for coding our cellular membranes, right? Mm -hmm. We need it for hormone production. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we need it for we need it for vitamin D production, which some would argue is a hormone, and you can argue that it is. We need it for signaling, right? So it helps mm -hmm. with communication with cells. It has a lot of functions. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it evolutionarily, we have only expanded our lifespan recently in the grand scheme of things when you look at evolution. We, before antibiotics and modern medicine, most people didn't live to 75 or 80 or 95 years old. And now we have these centenarians, right? Where yeah. a lot of work is being done on those blue zones. Right. But prior to antibiotic use, and modern medicine that really got rid of these acute illnesses, mostly infections. Most people didn't live long enough, right? When you look at the Renaissance and medieval times, most people didn't live past 50, 60 years old. Right. If, that, if you lived to that old, you were considered old. Now it's kind of middle-aged, right? Now it's normal. <laughs> right. So when you look at cholesterol, it never was a cause of major health issues because you died of other things before your heart got to you. Right. And now we're starting to realize as we're increasing lifespan that these other issues start coming up and that's where cholesterol starts to play a role and becomes a problem. Although some would argue that it's not the only contributor. And I think in part that's true, but there's a lot of nuances to it that we should discuss. And I think so many people focus on the bad part of cholesterol that they forget all the good parts that you just said, right? And it's like Goldilocks to little cholesterol, and now you have signaling issues and cell membrane issues and hormone production issues, but too much of a maybe particular kind as we'll get into when you're looking, you're breaking down your cholesterol, and now we have problems in your arterial system, right? Your, your arteries and, and capillaries and cardiovascular system, and that's where the issue can lie. Yes, absolutely. So I just wanted to touch on this. You made a good point cholesterol is necessary for making hormones and our energy production, no mitochondria. So just want to remind people that that is where hormones are made, right? Mm -hmm. Hormones are made in the mitochondria. So don't forget about that. And mitochondria health plays a big role in cardiovascular disease prevention from an extrapolation point. Could I say somebody's mitochondrial dysfunction that they're going to get heart disease? Not a one-to-one -one connection, but mm -hmm. I can bet you that that person who does have mitochondrial issues is more likely to have the other cardiovascular issues because again, it's pumping all of the time. So we need to make sure that it's nourished. But you made a really good point in that there are a lot of other factors that really come into play in, when you look at things like cholesterol and how it plays a role in, in these diseases. And the problem with cholesterol is it's an exceptional fuel to a fire. Mm. It does a really good job at kind of setting things off if you can't control it properly. Mm. And when we look at cholesterol in, from a cardiovascular disease perspective, too much of it is not good, right? Mm -hmm. And we're still learning mm. about how much little is little and how much a lot is a lot. Now, if you asked most doctors right now, what do you do to check lipids? They look at total cholesterol, 
and LDLC, and that's it. Maybe HDL too. Like that is the basic of what they're doing. Right. And there's so much more that needs to be discussed. But I think the other part that's totally missed is the inflammatory part, which is really important, not only just from a cardiovascular disease perspective, but from a, say, trying to understand what is contributing to this issue. Right. We look at multiple different things, which I think we'll get, yeah. we'll get into. Yeah, for sure. Especially with inflammation and cardiovascular disease, we know it. If you are a functional integrative naturopathic root cause, we understand the concept. That's not often how it's explained with cardiovascular disease. Or, and sometimes inflammation is just a nebulous word. You know, if you say to somebody, wow, you're really inflamed, they're like, I don't know what that means. Like, how do you know that? But what they don't realize are some of these, like the inside of their arteries are mad, which we'll get into, or even just not cardio related per se, but like joint pain and swelling, headaches, like the gas and bloating, like anywhere you've got these symptoms could really indicate a type of inflammation of some sort in the body. And that's what's your, I think what's what you're saying, right? Is like, this over time is just going to contribute and propagate cardiovascular disease, heart disease. Yeah. For sure. Well, I'm so glad you said that. Number one, whenever somebody says to me, oh, I'm inflamed or this food causes inflammation or I don't even think pathologists fully understand inflammation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think we need inflammation. Exercise is inflammation, Mm -hmm. right? Exercise has been associated with certain cytokines and myokines, which elicit an inflammatory response for beneficial growth, right? Right. So interleukin-6, IL-6 is a pro-inflammatory marker, but it's increased when you exercise. That doesn't make sense. So by that logic, somebody would say, well, then you shouldn't exercise because it increases IL-6 and that's as bad for you. Not true. That's just not how things work. Right. So we're all under a certain amount of inflammation. Mm -hmm. It really just depends on where is the, where is it weighing? Mm -hmm. Is it weighing on the high side or is it weighing on the low side? And if your seesaw is pushed in one way or the other, it's going to be a problem because remember, even when we have too little inflammation, although I don't think people talk about this and I don't know if there's a proper way to, Mm. to discuss it, but if there's not an appropriate inflammatory response, usually an immunostimulatory response that's when other diseases pop up like cancer, right? Right. So right. cancer sometimes is like when we can't recognize mm. this thing that should be eliciting an inflammatory response or chemokines or cytokines or whatever it is. Right. That's a good point. So yeah, I think that's really important that we talk about inflammation in the context of understanding what it's doing at a molecular level. And at some points that really can't be identified with the standard basic lab. Right. Right. And there will be inflammation over time. And the goal is to minimize. And then also, which I wanted to mention earlier is when we're trying to define like who, what is cholesterol bad? Is cholesterol good? Who is it bad for? Who is it good for? I can tell you it's bad for me. (laughs) I know. Right. And I can tell you a million times, you know this because we're friends, but if I literally had to tell you how many people in my family either had a heart attack or died from heart disease, I don't have enough fingers or toes. It's Mm -hmm. essentially everybody has been impacted in my family. So the likelihood that having a high LDL cholesterol, or we'll talk about other things like ApoB in my context is a big problem. So I think before we go deeper into all this other stuff, what people need to understand is risk. Yeah. If you can assess risk, it's going to make this equation and this whole determination of what to do for somebody a lot easier. So if you have somebody who's 90 years old, mm-hmm. right? 
and they're in great shape. They never had a heart attack. Cholesterol is probably not going to be a problem for them because if it were, it would have probably had been an issue at their 50s, 60s, or 70s. Right. But if you have somebody who's in their 40s or 50s and everybody in their family either had a heart attack, died from a heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular disease, some kind, you have to consider like this person's risk is much different than that other person's risk, which also pushes me into my genetic background that I love so much, understanding. And we'll get into, yeah. Yes. Genetic risk. I'll stop there because I know we can really go into a rabbit hole with that, but it's important that we understand risk. Well, I do think it's important because what I want to talk about next are just to explain like you've mentioned HDL and LDL, so high density lipoprotein, low density lipoprotein. So like what is a lipoprotein? And and we will go into this too, just because you get numbers back on your cholesterol panel and they're very generic. And I understand why they're very generic, be under this number, be over this number and you get a gold star, you're going to be fine. But as we'll find out as we're talking, it's not necessarily, and you really kind of teed us up for that with the whole risk, just because you were under or over a certain number, there are a lot of other factors that come into play. You and I are prime opposite examples. My over under number is going to be way different from your over under number, just based on what we know about genetics and some other risks. So what is HDL and LDL? Let's start there. We talked about (laughs) cholesterol. And so if somebody's reading the report and they say, okay, I have HDL and LDL on here. What is that? Okay. All right. So high density lipoprotein, low density lipoprotein. So based, they're basically in the most simplest form categorized by their density. That's pretty much it. So there's the largest, which is the largest particle, which is a a chylomicron, Mm -hmm. which is essentially what our body, when we eat, we absorb these fats or triglycerides, we put these things called chylomicrons, and those go back to the liver. And then the liver then spits out VLDL. So there's very low density lipoprotein, low density lipoproteins. So LDL, then the LDL then can be converted to IDL, intermediate density lipoproteins. And then we, the liver can also spit out HDL, Uh high density lipoproteins. So really just depending on how dense it is. So if you remember from like sixth grade science class, if you took different substances and you threw them in a beaker, right? The ones that are most dense are going to fall, Mm -hmm. the high density. The ones that are least dense are going to float or stay above. It's kind of like how ships float because they just have lower density than water. I'm not going into the physics of that. We'll, (laughs) We'll leave that for another. But I think people can get the visual of that. They understand that. Exactly. So that's how they're categorized. And in general, the VLDL, the very low density are bigger. They're wider, they have Mm -hmm. a bigger diameter, and the HDL have the smallest diameter. So if you're just thinking about size, it's VLDL, LDL, IDL, HDL. And then even those are subcategorized into particle size, which is a lot more advanced. But from a basic perspective, they're just based on their density. And since we're talking definitions, then what's a triglyceride? Okay. It's another type of lipid. Okay. So a triglyceride is a triacylglycerol. So it's a glycerol, which is a three-carbon backbone or three hydroxyl groups. And tri stands for three fatty acids that are bound to the glycerol backbone. And those fatty acids could be anything. It could be omega-3, it could be omega-6, it could be omega-9, it could be palmitic acid, it could be icosapentaenoic acid, so EPA, mm-hmm. DHA, it could be essentially any of those. Okay. It could be cold. Well, no, if it were choline, it would be phospholipid. Right. A little different. It's getting too 
a little bit different. Yeah. Okay. A triglyceride or a TG for abbreviation is a type of fat that carries fatty acids throughout the body. So then where do we make these things? Like, do we, do they all come from the liver? Do we get them from diet? And then like, how is cholesterol different than triglycerides? Because we often hear that. Yeah. So we make them mostly in the liver. Okay. A majority of them are made in the liver. We can absorb some cholesterol, very, very, very little. Triglycerides are largely impacted by our carbohydrate intake. Okay. Unless somebody is incredibly, incredibly unlucky to have some genetic predisposition where they can't make, I'm sorry, where they make a lot of triglycerides. Okay. And that's not so uncommon. We do see that with individuals who have uh, hypertriglyceridemia, which is basically high triglycerides and then put on a medication, even though they're not eating a lot of carbohydrates. Is there a number cutoff you have for that? Like, is there a triglyceride level where you would start to suspect the genetic part versus diet part? Uh, yeah. So if you and I were speaking and I know how you eat and you know how I eat and you said, and I said, Hey Gary, my triglycerides are 300 or 400 mm. for somebody like myself who I have less than hundred grams of carbs a day. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, yeah, there's something going on there with your diet. There's a problem. There's an issue. Most lipidologists and cardiologists, I have to look at the guidelines, what the definition is, but they start getting concerned when it's in 500, 600, mm. can even get to the thousands, right? Yeah. When you get to the thousands and the high hundreds, there's obviously a genetic component that's going on. Okay. But my ideal is less than a hundred for most individuals. So for the average person though, likely not a genetic issue and for triglycerides in particular and likely related to carbohydrate intake, however that looks for them. That's exactly right. So okay. there's a whole biochemistry behind it, but essentially what happens is that when you are eating a lot of these carbohydrates, they impact part of our TCA cycle, the Krebs cycle, mm-hmm. and it causes us to make more triglycerides when we're having more of this glucose come into the cell. Glucose is coming from carbohydrates. So the easiest way to increase your triglycerides is simple starch and sugar. Yeah. Which is really common oh, yeah. in our society, right? That's a sort of go-to oh, yeah. feel-good, quick foods for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And then as far as the cholesterols go, most of that is coming from the liver? Yes. And then very little is impacted by diet. So the whole craze of don't eat an egg, don't eat eggs ever because it's going to raise your cholesterol. How much truth is there to that? Very little. <laughs> very, very little truth. So I've learned this. I even had some arguments. I was... Probably shouldn't have argued with my professors in my freshman year in my nutrition program at NYU, but they were asking for it. They accepted me. So, <laughs> and I love them all for it because I, I still teach there now and mm-hmm. I can go back and they're like, oh, hey, Ralph, it's so nice to see you. And it's, it's different. It's great when somebody comes in and they like ask legitimate questions. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like more where I was coming from. It's like, I don't understand this. Like, people who eat a lot of eggs don't always have a high cholesterol levels, mm-hmm. but Yes. So the reason why is because the cholesterol that we eat is a cholesterol ester. Okay. So even a lot of our listeners will probably understand what phytosterols are. Compesterol or a, a cytosterol is one of the more common ones. Beta cytosterol is in a lot of prostate formulas. That's actually a sterile ester. So it's in the capsules as a sterile ester because it's just it's not possible to compact it enough and for it to be stable unless it's esterified. Okay. But you can't absorb esters. You can't absorb cholesterol ester or sterile esters. So phytosterols are similar to cholesterol. They're a similar structure. So you can't absorb those. And the cholesterol that's found in eggs and red meat and pretty much any other food that has high seafood, like Mm -hmm. shellfish, 
those are cholesterol esters. So in order for us to digest that, we need to have high amounts of these esterases or lipases to break down this fat and to absorb it. I don't know the exact amount, but it's somewhere between five to 10% of the cholesterol that we eat, we can absorb. Relative to what we were taught 15, 20 years ago, right? That's a very low number. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then even then, it's a minute amount compared to what the liver is making. Mm -hmm. Because remember, as we discussed in the beginning, the body needs cholesterol for multiple different functions. So not only does your liver make cholesterol, but your adrenal glands make cholesterol, your testes, Mm -hmm. your ovaries, your brain. Your brain is one of the most important things, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly fat. Yeah. And in fact, the brain makes its own cholesterol. doesn't really rely on the liver so much. So, Which is super important. I mean, thank goodness for brain health. Yes, absolutely. And dementia and Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. when we talk a little bit more about these specific markers, we can talk more about those. How can we really assess that? But a majority is the liver. Okay. So let's dive into the testing. So I want to do just a brief review of, again, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, VLDL, triglycerides. And I know that, of course, everyone says your cholesterol in US metrics, you know, that your total cholesterol should be under 200. Your LDL should be under 100. HDL should be over 50. We have these very concrete numbers, right? Triglycerides should be under 100. But it doesn't necessarily guarantee you a freedom from heart disease just by having those numbers. But can you break down the standard cholesterol panel for everyone? And then we'll move into the advanced markers that you like to add on top of it and why. Absolutely. So basic lipid panel is total cholesterol, LDLC, so LDL cholesterol, concentration, mm-hmm. HDL concentration, that concentration is going to be really important when we get to the other ones, Okay. triglycerides, and then some labs will do non-HDL cholesterol. So that's total cholesterol minus HDL, and that's your non-HDL cholesterol. Those are the basic, and then some labs will also add on a VLDL. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like the basic, but if you were to go to like your PCP and say, I want a lipid panel, it's total LDL, HDL, triglycerides. That's pretty much the basic. And really what they're trying to do is follow basic guidelines for the general population. And these are just guidelines as to, you know, the American Heart Association just determined these are the cutoffs that we want people to do. So as you mentioned, cholesterol less than 200, LDL less than 100, HDL varies, but they say above 50, Mm -hmm. triglycerides ideally less than 100, but they have a cutoff of 150. So those are the general guidelines that you would get at a typical doctor's office. And you and I have talked before about ratios. So even though we're going to get into advanced testing, so let's say somebody only has a their general basic cholesterol in front of them. What are the ratios you like to see between what markers and why are you looking for those? Yeah, so I look at the HDL to triglyceride ratio. Okay. So some labs also represented as the triglyceride to HDL ratio. It really, it really depends which is in the numerator and which is in the denominator. But mm-hmm. we want your triglyceride to HDL ratio to be less than two. Okay. Right. So we want your triglycerides to be less than 100 and your HDL to be over 50. HDL over 50, triglycerides less than 100. Okay. And when you look at that ratio, some labs do HDL to triglyceride. They want it to be more than 0.5. It depends on okay. what math you're doing. But that's really the only ratio that I look at. There are other people who look at like total cholesterol or HDL. Those really don't correlate much with anything. Okay. When I look at a basic lipid panel, my eyes go straight to the LDL. In fact, actually, they go straight to the triglyceride. I look at the triglycerides first because that tells me that, number one, what is their diet doing to their health and to their lipid ratios or to their lipids? Mm-hmm. And 
LDL is and VLDL, they're mostly triglycerides. So if you have a lot of triglycerides, that LDL and that VLDL, they're going to be compacted with or highly concentrated with triglycerides. So I go, I look straight at the triglycerides. Which again is very diet related, as you said. It is. Okay. Very much so. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I look at their LDL cholesterol. Those are the two basic things. Okay. And I determine what my cutoff is based on what their history is. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at me and even my primary care, he's like, yeah, your LDL cholesterol has to be less than a hundred. I'm like, okay, that's good. But I bet you a lot of people in my family were on a lot of medication to keep their LDL cholesterol less than a hundred and they still ended up dying from these diseases. So I'm a lot more strict on what I do, but yes, those are really the guidelines that most people look at. Okay. So we have total cholesterol in general, following just general guidelines, knowing that statistics versus individual, total cholesterol under 200, LDL under a hundred, HDL generally over 50 and triglycerides at the very least under a hundred optimally. We do know that you were saying that obviously some labs say under 150, but under 100, and we've talked before, sometimes even below 90 or below 80 can make a big impact. And when you're looking at ratio, you look at triglyceride to HDL. So you want HDL to be higher and triglycerides to be lower. So way more than 50 and way under 100. Mm -hmm. So where they're almost, they're almost maybe the same number, (laughs) hopefully, right? Okay. All right. Yeah, that'd be great. So now that's the screening. That's the screening panel. But as we keep alluding to, it's it's not the big picture. It's not what we consider an advanced lipid panel. And here's what I love working in this field. The advanced lipid panel and the markers we're about to keep talking about, they're not special. They're not crazy. They're not rare and out of this world. And so as people are listening and they're realizing they have a strong family history, or they're realizing they're already at risk and they'd like some additional markers. I want the listeners to know these are markers or additional panels you can ask your practitioner for. Like I said, they're not rare and crazy. So keep in mind what we're talking about is not a secret. It's open information and labs you can get, right? Because I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, there goes Carrie and Ralph talking about those crazy markers again. It's like, no, we are trying to protect you from heart disease. These markers you can ask your practitioner for. Yeah. And they're not even expensive, to be honest. Yeah. They're not even expensive. (laughs) Not the grand scheme of heart disease. (laughs) If your doctor says, well, you know, your, your insurance is not going to cover this. I'm like, don't worry, doc. I got three bucks or I got five bucks. I can cover my mm-hmm. extra lab marker that my insurance won't want to cover or not. So yes, absolutely. So let's go into the markers. What are the extra markers you like to run when you're looking at advanced markers, whether it's a full-on panel or if there's somebody listening today is like, give me three markers or five additional markers, you know, just something they can tactically write down and ask for. Yeah. Above all, APOB also known as apolipoprotein B. Okay. So that's number one. Okay. Number two would be sterols. So there's four of them. I'm hoping you're going to give me a pass and say just a sterile panel. It's four markers. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll do that (laughs) in the interest of time. It's really just one check on the lab form. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to count that as one, but there's four of them. Okay. Two of them measure how much cholesterol you absorb and two of them measure how much cholesterol you're making, which is really important if you really want to get precise. If you're practicing precision medicine, this is as precise as you'll get in terms of lipids. Okay. And then the third that does not come in a typical panel, I would, I would have to say not necessary, but a nice to have would be a lipoprotein, like particle size count. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you will be getting an LDLP, HDLP, 
And then you'll be able to look at them and they'll tell you how much are there, the concentration, or I'm sorry, the, the quantity, the amount, the count. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they'll also tell you sizes. It's arguable how helpful the sizes are. And I think it's a little bit advanced unless you really, really understand how it will change management. Mm-hmm. But I would say those first two can be clinically relevant for most individuals. All right, let's break down apolipoprotein B. What is that? <laughs> okay, ApoB, apolipoprotein B. I'm going to refer to it as ApoB. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a pretty cheap test. So if you want to add it on, depending on the lab, it's anywhere from like three to five bucks. So oh it's really, really easy, yeah. really easy. And it tells you a lot. And it's different than LDLC. So remember, LDLC is a concentration. ApoB is giving you particle count. Mm. Okay. So in order to understand this, you need to understand what is ApoB? Where does it live? What does it do? Mm-hmm. Why does it exist? Mm-hmm. ApoB is on, or we call these ApoB containing particles. That is lipoproteins or lipids that have ApoB on them. So HDL does not have it. Okay. HDL does not have ApoB, but LDL does, VLDL, IDL, LP little light. Oh man, I forgot about that. That would have been my third one. I was wondering about that one, but I was like, okay. Yes. <laughs> you love LP little A. LP little A. <laughs> How could I forget that? He's such a dummy. Yes, that is absolutely necessary. Okay. Okay. I take it back. ApoB, sterols, LP little A, bar none. Okay. Those are your three. Okay. Yes. Scratch what I said before. So, although I do think. But then for somebody who needs maybe more advanced, 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 they could write that one down and ask their practitioner about it. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though we won't have time to cover it today, but it is something just like, hey, here's a yeah. extra, extra step you could order. Absolutely. Okay. Let's go back to ApoB. Keep going. So ApoB is a lipoprotein. It's a protein that is found on uh, LDL, VLDL, LDL, IDL. Okay. And it because cholesterol, the fat, and we know this, you and I talk about this a lot with hormones because they're fat or derived from fat, from cholesterol, they need to be transported in the blood. In order for them to be transported in the blood, they need a protein. Okay. And the protein that transports them is ApoB. So it's kind of like a bus. Exactly. Okay. It's the bus that traffics these lipoproteins around. Okay. And then they go around the body, they go in the blood vessels, they bind to different receptors. They bind to LDL receptors, they bind to lipoprotein lipase, right? They bind to these different receptors, which then determine what they do. Okay. So lipoprotein lipase kind of breaks them down. LDL receptors kind of engulfs them, brings them in. Okay. That cannot happen without ApoB. Okay. You have to have the bus. So in order, you need the bus or in order for them to be transported and to be bind to these receptors. Otherwise, they will not be recognized. Okay. So that's absolutely necessary. Now, ApoB is a necessary component to atherosclerosis. Oh. So in order for the cholesterol, I'm going very general here, in order for the LDL, via the L cannot, but in order for the LDL to get into the artery wall, it needs an ApoB attached to it. And when you get into an artery wall, that's bad. Yes. So it's very complex here, but when you get into the artery wall, it can be bad mm-hmm. if it stays there. So- Oh, right. You have an artery wall, it, you bind to this LDL receptor, takes in the ApoB, and you have these adherents, there are adherents called VCAM and E-selectins, these different types of adhesion factors that bind to that LDL particle. We're thinking just one particle. Mm-hmm. Now, 
what you're measuring with LDLC is a concentration. Okay. It's not telling you the particles. It's just telling you the total. Okay. Right? It's just telling you how concentrated is my blood with LDLC. ApoB is saying this is how many LDL particles you have in your blood. Okay. And those are the little goblets that travel around and get into the lining of the artery. So we all have seen the pictures on TV or in school or at our doctor's office where they show the inside of an artery and it's like full of plaque or like it's sort of bulging, you know, now they're like, here's the blood flow when your arteries nice and open. And here's the blood flow when you have like a half blockage or a partial blockage, or you've got this plaque buildup. And it's, this is what you're talking about. If with the ApoB and the LipoPro LDL stays there, then it doesn't get broken down. Then that's when you get that image that we all learned on school or TV or from our practitioner. We start to get those plaques and blood flow can't get through. That's exactly right. But there needs to be inflammation and it needs to be an immune response first. Okay. Okay. So that ApoB needs to create, this word may sound familiar, a foam cell. Yeah. Which is when white blood cells, macrophages come in and they swallow this ApoB or this lipoprotein that was brought in by an ApoB because it should not be. Mm-hmm. And if it should not be there, we have to kill it. And the way that we kill it is we send the immune system and the immune system then starts to sabotage our own blood vessels. Okay. And that's when plaque starts to build up and it starts to narrow the lumen or the lining or the opening of the artery. And that's how we start contributing to atherosclerosis. So what increases our ApoB? Why does it go up? There's a large genetic component Mm. in most individuals. Okay. But that's where the second test really comes in is, are you making a lot of cholesterol? Okay. Are you reabsorbing a lot of cholesterol. Because remember, I said you can't absorb a lot of cholesterol because they're esters. So Mm -hmm. are you reabsorbing it from your bile Mm. that you're trying to eliminate, Mm -hmm. uh, usually in the end of the terminal ileum, the end of the ileum, to the end of the intestinal tract, the small intestine? Okay. Do you have high triglycerides? So remember, in order to make LDL particles, you need a high high triglycerides. Are you having too many triglycerides, which are causing you to make more LDL, which is your body, your liver is going to make more of it. And remember, ApoB's on the LDL? Yep. Or is there a problem with how you clear it? Okay. Are these receptors, which are designed to get rid of cholesterol, are those faulty? All of the above is the answer to that. Why do we have high ApoB? Ketogenic diets in some individuals can mm, cause yeah. high ApoB levels. Mm-hmm. That is me. That is absolutely me. Yeah. Anytime I have try to go keto, I'm like, I'm just going to give this a shot again. My lipids just shoot through the roof high triglycerides, so high sugar diet. So that doesn't mean you can mm-hmm. go from keto to like a carpetarian mm-hmm. that also can contribute to the problem. Right. So all of these things together really contribute to elevated ApoB levels. And then what do you find generally, like what do you suggest with your patients to help lower the ApoB? Even the guidelines now from, you know, the American Heart Association and cardiology journals, European Lipid Society, mm-hmm. they all recommend dietary intervention and exercise first. Okay. Diet impacts lipids more than exercise. I know people who exercise like crazy and their lipids can still be elevated and it's largely because of their diet. Mm. So things that you really want to focus on, monitoring saturated fat intake, I know I'm going to be attacked for that, but in individuals who do have high lipids, they really need to be aware of their saturated fat intake. Well, this is why it's important to know your numbers, right? Exactly. If you know these numbers about you, then you can more readily tailor how you eat to your lipids. That's right. And knowing your genetic and your family background, Yeah. right? Yeah. I would not feel comfortable living my whole life with an LDLC 
I mean, in my case, I want it to be less than a hundred. Mm-hmm. I want my ApoB to be less like in the sixties okay. for myself. Okay. I would not feel comfortable if I was living my whole life with an ApoB above 80 or an LDLC above a hundred. It just doesn't sound right. The risk. Yeah. Risk is too great. What is the typical, what is a like a functional level for ApoB? What do you tell people ideally you should be as opposed to what the reference range is? I look at it and I just kind of give them the range. Okay. So the fifth percentile is 65. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. I don't even look at the 95th percentile, but like above 120 is around the 90 or like 140. It's like the 90, 90th percentile. Okay. So these are the ranges. Less than 80, I'm okay with. Okay. Depending on an individual's. Uh, risk factors. And also depends on how young you are, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Depends on what you're doing. If you can manipulate those numbers with lifestyle, if somebody is really trying hard, like doc, I'm really doing everything I can. Like their triglycerides are in the fifties. They're not eating a lot of saturated fat. They're pescatarian or even they're vegan. Mm-hmm. And like, they just can't get the number lower. Mm-hmm. Then we look at other interventions. Mm-hmm. I don't prescribe, but I look at things like Fairbrin. I look at things like red yeast rice. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I haven't seen bergamot work. Although there is some data suggesting that it might. It's very popular right now. I see a lot of companies putting out bergamot products. Yeah, I have not seen it work. But I haven't read any literature about it. Yeah, some of the literature suggests it, it helps. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, I've seen red yeast rice work mm-hmm. well. It's essentially a natural, naturally occurring statin yeah. with very low side effect profile. Uh, Berberin mm-hmm. helps with LDL clearance. So that's a really good agent. Okay. People know that as like the poor man's metformin. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So that one's really good. Yep. And I think largely comes down to lifestyle and actually fasting. Fasting can be very helpful. Because fasting can upregulate our LDL clearance because we're not taking in any lipids. So we have to get rid of them. And do you differentiate here between intermittent fasting or like a long fast or do both help? I think both help. But really the what I've seen clinically is on like a three day water fast or a five day low calorie, like a prolon or like a 750 calorie fast. Those are the most effective. Okay, But you can't just go back and eat bacon. Right. (laughs) Or the standard American diet. And I will give the caveat just because if you're listening, don't just jump yourself onto a three-day water fast. If you have no idea what you're doing, definitely. Please don't. Find somebody who's skilled and can help walk you through that if that's something you've been considering because you could potentially do more harm than good. So I just want to put that little caveat in there. Yes. I do want to, I want to go on to the sterols you mentioned that where there's four of them and that helps you decide, do you absorb, right? And so can you walk through that really quickly? Absolutely. Lithosterol and desmosterol are the two that we that tell us how much cholesterol we synthesize, how much we make. Okay. Compesterol and cytosterol are the two that tell us how much we are reabsorbing. Okay. So by looking at those two, you can see, okay, well, my desmosterol, my lithosterol are really high. That means I'm making a lot of cholesterol. Mm -hmm. That's where saturated fat intake limitations really works the best. Okay. So when we eat a lot of saturated fat, it may increase synthesis of these sterols, which tells us that we're making more cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And when we have absorption markers really high, there's a genetic component to that. And there's certain influx and efflux proteins that are regulated by that. But in individuals who are also keto, that's where we see some elevations in in the absorption markers or people who are not having a lot of fiber in their diet. Because the way that it works is that these are sterols that Mm -hmm. are in the bile and 
uh, or the body tries to get rid of through the bile. Mm-hmm. It's in the bile and the body's trying to not reabsorb it, but we are. Right. So that could be either due to just exorbitant amounts of it, or we have a genetic predisposition to reabsorb them. Okay. And that's where things like soluble and insoluble fiber become very healthy. And there's a lot of new research looking at how the microbiome can have an influence on that, which I think is in, is in its infancy, but has a lot of potential. That microbiome, man, I feel like it just, the amount of research that comes out of it for absolutely everything is impressive. And I'm sure in the next year or three, we're going to see heart disease in the microbiome really linked. Oh, yeah. In, in that regard. Yeah. Okay. So with the sterols, the first two markers you said are the production, you make a lot or don't. And the second two are you reabsorb a lot or you don't. That's right. And so using, you can use diet to your advantage here, fiber to your advantage here, depending which where you are, right? Reducing saturated fat to your advantage here. When looking at these sterols. Yes. And not okay. every lab offers them. So okay. the typical generic labs that you get at your doctor's office, they don't offer them. Okay. I think at this point, all I've used uh, Boston Heart mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. And then there are a few other labs. I think Cleveland also offers it. Oh, I think you're right. But I use, right now I use Boston. Boston Heart. Boston Heart for them. Okay. And then let's finish out with LP little A. Let's talk about LP little A. What happens? What is that? And what happens if it's elevated? Yes. Well, if it's elevated, there's a problem <laughs> and you should be concerned. It's genetically determined. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you can do at this point that will have an impact on your LP little A. There are some medications that are coming out called PCSK9 inhibitors that may reduce LP little A. But it, mm-hmm. right now, statins do not do anything to LP little A. There is some research suggesting that niacin might help reduce LP little A levels. I was going to ask about niacin, yeah. Yeah, so it, niacin can increase HDL and may reduce LP little A. Okay. I've seen it only work if people have very high LP little A levels. Okay. But LP little A is one of the other apolipoprotein B containing particles. And it's actually one of the more problematic because it causes an increase in atherosclerosis, mm. typically of our valves. Eesh. So of the aortic valve, more so because it's just a lot of pressure there. Mm-hmm. It significantly increases somebody's risk for cardiovascular disease. So when I look at them, I say, okay, well, your LDLC is mediocre, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say it's like 105, mm-hmm. but your LP little a is through the roof. Okay, there's a problem here. And now we need to be a lot more aggressive. This is what we see a lot of people have a family history of like aneurysms or mm-hmm. heart attacks or stroke or mostly aortic stenosis. Mm. I'm like, okay, we really have to make sure that we check their LP little a. And if it's elevated, then like you said, you're going to be extra diligent in how you approach their heart health. Absolutely right. Mm -hmm. There's no medication right now that would solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's actually a small portion of our ApoB. So if somebody has a very high ApoB count, Mm -hmm. right, if they're one uh, you know, their ApoB is 120 mm. milligrams per deciliter. Very small portion of that is LP little a. A large portion of that are LDL particles. So you can't even say, well, my ApoB is low, then my LP little a must be normal. Not true because it's such a little amount that you can't determine that. I have a high LP little a, so mm-hmm. it's got all the cards against you. Which when you said in the beginning, everybody in your family seems to go from heart disease, you probably weren't surprised to see a high LP little a. Yep. It, unfortunate to see it, but not surprised to see it. That's right. And I checked my siblings as well. Okay. And I think 
my brother has it, but my sister does not. So she lucked out. Interesting. (laughs) Genetics, man. Yeah. But this is also good for those who are listening and they're thinking to themselves, I did a standard basic lipid panel and I seem, quote, okay. But gosh, everybody in my family, I have a very strong history of heart disease. So after listening to this, I should probably get some more advanced lipid testing and really see what's going on under the hood. Absolutely. And do it for your mom, do it for your dad, do it for your siblings, like Mm -hmm. encourage them to do it as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's heart disease is the number one killer and it kills Mm -hmm. older individuals, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there are people who have heart attacks in their 40s and their 50s, and that's scary. Yeah. But a majority of the people are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, 80s, right? We expect people to have heart attacks in their late 80s and 90s because, again, Mm -hmm. back to the engine analogy, it just gets worn out. Right. But it should not happen when you're younger. Right. Um, and we're seeing a lot more of that now. There is a lot of data suggesting that more younger people are getting heart disease than we actually yeah. want them to or that they should. Kids, I neither you or I do pediatrics, but some of my our pediatric colleagues say heart disease markers, These some of these advanced lipid part markers are showing up pretty concerningly in children, teens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Funny story, just kind of an, an anecdote. When I was... I was probably around, I had to be like five or six because my father had, no, I must've been like nine years old. So my father had two heart attacks when I was seven. So he, I think he was 47 or 48 and he had two heart attacks already. Mm. And I must've been like nine years old. And the doctor told my mom, he said, Mrs. Esposito, if your husband had a heart attack at 47, your son's going to have one at 37 because I had the cholesterol level probably of like an elephant. Wow. It was just an enormous amount of cholesterol pound for pound. Yeah. And he was like, this is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. And I was a chunky little kid, right? Growing up in an Italian family where you wanted to be fed, you know, prosciutto and mozzarella and pasta all day, right? Like that was just normal. I want that. I love your mom. I love <laughs> hanging out with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> she loves you too. <laughs> but my arteries do not love that. Yeah. So yeah, right. <laughs> That was a problem growing up, right? And so it's, I'm living proof. Like it's been an issue for me since I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. That really comes back to the original point that I said. It's like, what contributes to atherosclerosis and heart disease? It's inflammation mm-hmm. and lipoproteins over time. Mm-hmm. It's not just like you check your lipids once and like, oh, I'm good, fine. Yeah. No, it's not fine. You should get them checked at least twice a year right. to make sure that everything is okay because it, it's a time-sensitive or uh, time-related disease. And I don't think people realize you can start, you don't have to necessarily be nine, but if you're listening to this at 25, go get tested at 25. Like why wait? Why wait until you're older and have your first heart attack or start to get diagnosed with certain types of heart disease? Find out now what's going on and then adjust accordingly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, They wanted to put me on cholesterol medication when I was younger. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents did not do it. They just stopped feeding me pancakes and hamburgers for breakfast. Yeah, that's probably the best approach, right? Yeah. And then I figured out a lot of other stuff. And that's when I started realizing I was, my father was sick his whole life. And I'm like, he went from heart disease to peripheral artery disease, dementia and Alzheimer's, right? And like all these things are related to your heart. Mm -hmm. And I just realized like all of the medication in the world was not able to fix the fact that this was a time related function of time Mm -hmm. and a function of lifestyle and nutrition. So, you know, many people will say, well, I'll just take a medication for that. I'll just take a statin. I'll take red yeast rice. Even it's natural, but it's, you're still reducing the number. 
But there's other lateral benefits that nutrition provides you yeah. that a medication or a supplement or exercise can help with, but there, you just can't replace those things. Right. So thinking that we're just going to fix it with a pill, regardless of the pill, is whether it's a natural supplement or a pharmaceutical, if you don't take care of the other things, right? Like we didn't yeah. even get to talk about like insulin levels and HSCRP and ESR and homocysteine and uric acid, right? All of these things matter. Right. There, but like, sure, okay, so you could take a medicine for your uric acid, great. You can't really take a medicine for CRP, you can't take a medicine for ESR. There's nutrients for homocysteine, but you can't take a medication for it. Mm-hmm. Right? All these things really play a role. So don't think that just correcting the number solves the problem. Right. You have to correct the environment. Which is my final question, which I think you just answered, but just so people know what my final question would have been, is as it relates to heart disease, what's your favorite practical tactical sort of root cause approach that somebody can list doing today can listen to this and immediately implement to reduce their risk or understand their risk. And I think you just nailed it on the head Yeah, with what you just said, as it relates to lifestyle, nutrition, know your numbers versus just, you know, giving up and relying on a pill or just thinking the pill will be your savior. Right. And the earlier you can get after it, the better mm-hmm. we don't want to. And this is why Alzheimer's is there's a vascular component to Alzheimer's and many people forget about, they talk about heart disease and they just think the heart, but there is a dementia or vascular component to it. And that's something that we really need to pay attention to is these things lead to other issues. So you may think like, I'm not going to die from heart disease, but if your brain doesn't work at the age of 70, that's scary too. Yeah. I lived it. Yeah, that's true. With my father, it was incredibly, incredibly scary and challenging. And I wish it upon nobody. Yeah. So take care of it now. If you do nothing else, just get the test. Yeah. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ralph Esposito, my best friend and lipid expert. I hope he motivated you to really evaluate your nutrition and lifestyle, but go get testing and go get just beyond the basic lipids. Because if you were listening to this and you felt, gosh, that's my family, or I've already lived it. I've already had a heart attack. I've already been told I have heart disease. Get this extra additional testing if you haven't already, because it could very much save your life. And at the very least, also, we're trying to improve your health span, not just your lifespan, but your health span. So how well you live into old age as opposed to just slamming into old age. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is brought to you by Rupa Health. To find out more about us, and how we are changing the lives of patients and practitioners across the U.S., head to rupahealth.com. And then make sure to search for Root Cause Medicine and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are found. Make sure to click that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Rupa Health, thanks for listening.